So yesterday was what? February what? 14th, right. Known as what? Valentine's Day. Yeah. It's all the day about what? Chocolate and flowers and romantic cards, right? That's what we've deemed it as. Uh, But, you know, I was very curious uh, to actually study what Valentine's Day is really about because I always realized, you know, there has to be a significant reason that we're celebrating this date. There has to be just more than some person decided to deem it as a day of romance, right? And why not, you know, February or whatever, or March or April? There's something behind it. And so I don't know if you know the story behind Valentine's Day, uh, but you're about to hear it regardless. (laughs) There was a man by the name of St. Valentine who was actually a priest. He was a follower of Jesus. Uh, He actually uh, loved God and he desired to fulfill the purposes of God here on earth. And at the time, he was in an era when there was an emperor by the name of Claudius. Claudius was totally against Christianity. He persecuted Christians, those who followed Jesus. Uh, He made sure that they would be punished or pay for their desire to follow Christ. In fact, Claudius uh, had an edict that he drew up. And what he did was he drew up this edict because he had an army. And he felt that his army was important to protect his kingship, his lordship, lowercase l, but to, uh, to protect that. So what he did is he decided to create an edict to protect his military. And by doing that, he made it so that every young soldier was not allowed to marry as long as he was in the military, because he felt that if those soldiers would give their lives to their family and to their wives and so on and so forth, that they would actually not fully concentrate, that when they would go into battle, they would be more opt to die and, and actually lose the battle than actually win the battle and be focused on the battle because they were more worried about their wives and families back at home. And so St. Valentine enters the picture and he says, we can't have that. And on top of that, Claudius began to promote polygamy. And he began to promote to these young soldiers to have multiple partners, but no commitment, just to take care of yourself so then you can come back, focus on the battle and protect me as king. So St. Valentine comes and he says, no, we have to protect the sanctity of marriage between man and wife man and woman. And so therefore, if there are soldiers that want to marry their wives, I'll marry them in secret. And so St. Valentine, going against the edict of Claudius, he, he begins to be known as this, this priest who goes and marries these young couples before the husbands go off to war. And they would do it in secret and in private. Well, eventually Claudius finds out. And Claudius says, we must do away with St. Valentine. And so St. Valentine is arrested. And St. Valentine goes away to a holding cell and he waits to die. Because at that time, you died for the gospel. Well, it just so happens that there's a young girl that gets sick. Sick to the point of death. Well, the judge who is present at St. Valentine's trial knew that St. Valentine was a man of God and a follower of Jesus. And for some reason, he felt, if I could just get my daughter to St. Valentine, maybe if he just prays for her, maybe she'll be healed. And so somehow the judge sneaks St. Valentine out of this prison because he had the connections. He pulled the strings. He sneaks him out. And St. Valentine prays for the judge's daughter and the judge's daughter is miraculously healed. And then he goes back to jail. Well, before we know it, more people start going to St. Valentine while he's in jail because they need healing. And God miraculously uses St. Valentine to heal these people. And so all these people begin getting healed and coming to Jesus while St. Valentine's in jail. And so what St. Valentine would do is he would write letters to those who got healed and those who were taken care of, and he would always sign it, your Valentine. Sound familiar? So he would sign it to them, your Valentine, and eventually, unfortunately, 
St. Valentine died a horrific three-phase death that Claudius gave to him. But before dying, St. Valentine was asked this question, simply said, why, why on earth would you go to such great lengths, such great lengths for other people, knowing that you are about to die and be killed for something like this? And St. Valentine's response was simply this, there are points and times in our lives that we follow Jesus, that we have to lay our lives on the line, even to the point of death. But we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he was executed. We think about that, that when we think about Jesus, that's exactly what he did. He went and laid his life on the line for all of us, all of humanity, even to the point of death. And he did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He realized that there would be that moment in time that he would have to give up his majesty temporarily. He would have to give up his life, his connection with Father God and with Holy Spirit for a moment in time, all for the sake of humanity and all through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you walk through the Gospels, like we're going to this morning, and you get to that place in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you find that moment in there where it talks about Jesus Christ on the cross, do you find yourself in a place of awe? Do you find yourself in a place where you need to pause? Do you find yourself in a place where you declare and say, this is a holy moment? That's what it's like when we really connect with the word of God. There's something about the word of God because it's living and it's real that when we begin to flip through the pages and our heart really connects with it, there are these moments where God causes us to pause and Jesus begins to reveal things to us and it begins to hit our hearts. Now to anyone who may not have encountered Jesus or maybe, maybe you're here and you haven't encountered Jesus yet, you would probably argue and say, well, what's the big deal with a crucifixion? Because that was the way the Romans killed everybody, right? I'm tracking with you. But the truth is there was something different there was something totally different about the crucifixion of Jesus that set him apart and his crucifixion from everybody else that has ever been crucified before him and after him. See, sometimes in our, in our Jesus mindset, in our Christian mindset, in our church world, we, we begin to think, we think about the crucifixion and obviously we always center back to Jesus, which is, which is good. But sometimes we forget that crucifixion was normal in that day. There are crucifixions going on all the time. And, and it's interesting how God chooses this, this one avenue to highlight this love story to all of mankind. And not only that, he flips it upside down and he makes it so that anytime we think about the crucifixion, we don't think about the Roman crucifixion. We think about the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to unpack that this morning. It's so amazing this demonstration that he gave because he gave out of selfless love. He gave out of obedience to the Father. Christ going to the cross was a demonstration. It was a declaration that the Father has the final say. The Father has the final say. So I'm going to ask you a question, and you can just give your answer by nodding. Not nodding off, but just, you know, nod your head. I'm not giving you permission to sleep. Some of you are like, yes. You know, <laughs> Have you ever been in an argument, maybe, maybe even on your way this morning to church, you get in an argument with somebody in your car or, or last night or the day before, whatever, but you, you've been in an argument and you ever try, you ever find yourself trying to get the last word in? You ever been there? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about. You know, like you're in the midst of the fight and, and some of you, you know, you just got to have that last word. And then do you ever stop and think how ridiculous we sound after a point in the argument? You know, and it's like, you know, we're fighting. We're fighting for a reason. We're fighting, you know, to stand on what we believe in. We're fighting for a purpose. 
and, and I'm gonna get that purpose across. I'm gonna make sure that you understand that we're gonna get this across and, and I'm in the right, so therefore we fight to have the last word. And then before you know it, the argument is so deep, we don't even remember why we started the argument. Like we totally lost that factor and now we're just arguing for the sake of arguing because we're trying to get the last word in. And you ever find yourself thinking like after the argument is over, and when you've separated yourself from that individual that you're arguing with, and then you begin to like backtrack what you said. And you think, okay, I'm an idiot, but I don't want to admit that, that I like totally just said that. You know, like you're in the midst of the argument and you're like, yeah, well, you, you know, you left the, the cap off the ketchup bottle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we wouldn't be in this mess if you just would have done that. And then they come back at you and you're like, what are you talking about? And that's like where you should like cap the conversation off, but, but you just go deeper. And you're like, well, if you don't understand, so yeah. And we find ourselves, <laughs> we find ourselves in this place where we just try to, to fight for the final say. And we come out looking like idiots. <laughs> that's just the truth, folks. <laughs> It's interesting because if we read through the Gospels and we read through the Bible, we find that uh, all the way back at the beginning of time, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see that there was a fight for the final say. See, it wasn't with Adam and Eve. It was between God and Satan. God comes in and he has this beautiful master plan and he begins to unfold it Satan comes along and says, no, I'm going to have the final say. Sin enters the world. And then we see, as we read through the Old Testament, and we make our way through the New Testament, we begin to see all these happenings where it's God comes back and says, no, I have the final say. And, and then Satan comes back, he says, no, I have the final say. And then God comes back and says, no, I have the final say. And then Satan comes back, I have the final say, so I'm going to do this and it's just this constant back and forth and, and we get here to the present and all of a sudden we see it happening that there is this battle between God and Satan for humanity for the final say. And Satan is out there and he's striving hard to, to create a delusion within our, with our lives and to create a delusion with sin to, to be able to go back to God and say, see, I have the final say. I'm taking this portion of humanity with me. Nah, 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 nah. And God's looking at him saying, no, you don't understand. I'm gonna have the final say, no matter what you say, no matter what you attempt to do. And God still, at the end of the day, still has the final say. And sometimes, in my personal opinion, I wonder if Satan like avoids the book of Revelation on purpose. You know, like, I just wonder, this is in my opinion, this is not theological, but just track with me for a minute. I just wonder sometimes if Satan, like, kind of, like, you know, kind of, like, tries to move it under the carpet, and he's just trying to play dumb, like, don't worry, guys, I've got this in the bag, we're going to rule the world, we're going to do everything, you know, and he's just afraid to look at the outcome because he knows what's coming. But I want us to look in Luke chapter 20, 23 this morning. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to look at how God had the final say and how that applies to our life and how he still has the final say. So in Luke chapter 23, verses 26, says this, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Serene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made, it, made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, the thing about Luke's, we, we pick up in this God plan that we find in Luke, and it's interesting how Luke writes versus everybody else. And there's certain things that Luke puts in there, and then there's other things that Luke actually leaves out. And so I encourage you that this week, as you're walking through the essential Jesus, uh, and we're walking through that together, I encourage you, just don't, when you get to that part where you're reading about Luke, don't, don't just camp out there. Take a little extra time and, and push yourself and go a little bit further and go, start in Matthew, Mark, continue in Luke and, and get your way through John and look at all the examples of how these men write about the crucifixion of Jesus because 
Unfortunately, I don't have the time this morning to, to grab every section that we find in every gospel about the crucifixion and I'll unfold that for us. But I'm, I'm encouraging you to do that. But we find here in Luke's account that something has transpired. Jesus, uh, we know in the gospels that Jesus has been whipped at this point. Uh, he's been beaten at this point, uh, which a lot of times we don't understand that if we look in the gospels, we can see that the soldiers, after he was tried, they actually took him away and separated him into another room and they beat him and they mocked him and they put the robe around him and they put the thorns on him. And what we need to understand is that was not normal standards of a crucifixion. They did that on their own, if you read through that. And so we come from that point now that they put this cross on Jesus, this massive T-shaped bar uh, made from wood, and they put it on him so we understand the, the physical place that Jesus is currently in, that he's not, you know, super juiced up on food and, and, and good drink, and he's not physically fit for this task at the moment. He's been beaten, scarred, worn down. His flesh has been ripped, and, and this is just the reality, folks, so <laughs> track with me for a moment, but and he gets to this place where this cross is put on him, and the reality is he can barely carry it. And so they grab somebody else in the crowd and they say, you're going to carry this for him. You're going to bear this for the moment. And so this man named Simon takes up this cross that Jesus was carrying. And when we get past all of the physical pain, and we realize that, yeah, Jesus endured pain that sometimes I look at and I read and I wonder, like, would I ever be willing to endure such pain because of my selfishness? But when we get past all the pain, there's something that we want to see here, something that strikes our hearts. Is the worst part for Jesus in this moment after he carries the cross and the cross is set in, he's nailed to the cross and he's lifted up on the cross there's an even greater pain that strikes the heart of Christ. It's the separation between him and his father. Just that split moment of time that this separation, this wall, is now erected between Jesus, the Son of God, and Father God. It was the most painful, agonizing experience he ever encountered, ever. He did this, he chose this for me. He did this and he chose it for you. He did this and he chose it for your coworkers. He did this and he chose it for the, the guy on the floor at GE that you try to avoid because he annoys you. He chose separation between him and his father for the girl in the cubicle next to you that you can't stand. He chose and he did it for all of humanity, regardless of who we are, our background, whatever we decide to do, he chose for us, everyone. He chose this pain and he allowed it to happen. He did it so that we could be forgiven and our, our sins could be restored. Not our sins, but that we, we could be forgiven and then we could be restored unto him and have communication with him. It was God demonstrating that he had the final say. And I know that sounds way, way out there that why would God be so brutal and, and so nasty and deny his own son when his son is hanging on the cross in physical pain and his son's doing such a loving thing? Well, that's the whole thing that sometimes we forget is that God cannot stand sin. Can't stand it. And so in this moment of time, God 
says somebody has to take the sin of the world, its entirety. They have to die for it. And so this sin is placed on Jesus. He goes to the cross. And Jesus carries this sin and the father says, I can't look at you. I have to separate myself from you. Because sometimes we forget that God's holiness and the purity of God demand death to all who sin. Let me repeat that really quick. The holiness and the purity of God demands death of all who sin. That that, that includes anyone who is born into this world. If we breathe breath and we are born into this world, then sin is present. And God says, I demand death to sin. And God wants the final say. And so when we think about this process of salvation for a moment, whether you are a Christ follower or you're not a Christ follower, there's something powerful about salvation that sometimes we become numb to. And it's this demonstration that God brings to us that he wants the final say in our lives. And if you look through the Gospels, you will find that there's several things that happened to those who encountered Jesus, those who give their life over to Christ. The first thing is, is they have an actual encounter with God. They have an encounter with Jesus. That's what we first see. We see that somewhere along the line, whether it was one of the disciples telling somebody about Jesus, somebody encountering Jesus themselves, we find that there was an encounter with God. And so some of you in here, you're a Christ follower because you had an encounter with Jesus. Others of you in here, you say, I've never encountered Jesus and I'm not a Christ follower. Don't worry, you'll eventually encounter him. And then we know that the second thing is, is that not only was there an encounter, but there was, there was this acknowledgement, there was this confession that took place. The first thing is they, once they encountered God, they acknowledged that he was God. They acknowledged that he was Jesus and they confessed it with their mouth that he was it. They had this understanding, this realization that, okay, I'm going to face death now and I won't have eternal life without this individual in my life. So we see that he had an encounter. We see that then they have this acknowledgement and this confession. And the third thing that we find is they ask forgiveness. They came to this realization that without Christ, we have no freedom, we have no hope. That without Christ going to the cross, there would be no final say of the Father. So death had to come so that we would be able to have forgiveness for our sin. That we realize that without Christ, we miss it. We won't make it. And then we see the next step is repentance. And in our American minds, we, we, we view repentance. And I, I talked about this at, at the Journeying with Power uh, seminar uh, just last week or two weeks ago. I can't remember, but it doesn't matter. But it was just this month. And I was talking about repentance and what repentance really means. And we see through the gospels and we see through the scriptures that for those who have an encounter with Jesus, they acknowledge that he is the son of God. And then when they ask for forgiveness, then comes repentance. And in our American minds, it's so easy for us to become so flippant with our repentance. That sin has just become so common to us that's like, oh, you know, and, and excuse me for my church words, but we're so under grace. Thank you, Jesus, we're just under grace. And so we're driving down the highway and all of a sudden something comes in our mind and we're like, oh yeah, I forgot. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a sin. I, I guess I should probably ask the Lord to forgive me. Jesus, thank you so much for your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, oh whoops, hang on. I know I shouldn't be looking at this while I'm driving, but I'm going to text anyway. 
and we put our phone back down or somebody calls us because they're calling us. So it's gotta be important. So we pick it up. And, and then once we're done with that, we get back to it. Okay, Jesus, I'm back. It's okay. So I'm here. Glad you're here too. But anyway, I need to ask forgiveness for, for this one sin that I committed this week. And you know what? And I just repent of that in the name of Jesus. Uh, thank you, Lord. Whew, good. It's good just to be in your good graces. Amen. And we just go on about our day. That was just me personally. That's, that's just what I do. I don't know about any of you. But. but see, for those in, in the Bible who understood repentance, it was this lifestyle of aggression. It was this lifestyle where they would aggressively deal with sin in their lives. That it wasn't taken as this moment where it was just flippant, that it was just quick, that it was, I can do it driving down the road. I can do it while I'm talking on the phone to somebody. I can do it while I'm texting. They understood the weight of the sin in their lives. So they understood that who they were coming before, that they understood that they were coming before somebody who had paid the price with death so that we could have life. And so we see that when somebody encounters Jesus, this lifestyle begins to change where they come to this place of aggressively attacking the sin of their lives. If you talk to an individual of the Jewish faith, you will understand that repentance and asking forgiveness is so sacred and personal they put themselves prostrate before the Lord. Even if they understand that Jesus Christ is the son of God, they still lay themselves before the Lord because they understand who they are talking to. And the holiness of God and the purity of God has the ability to wipe us out at any given moment, but he chooses not to. And finally, the last thing that we see for those who encounter Jesus when we give God the final say in our lives is, is they begin to live this lifestyle of obedience where they love God, so they want to obey God. And so then they begin to pursue a lifestyle of obedience to the Father. So I have a question for you. And this is simply rhetorical, but this morning... Does the Father have the final say in your life? Think about that. Only you can answer it. Does the Father really have the final say in your life? If you're here this morning and you've never encountered Jesus, can you really say that, yes, the Father has had the final say in my life and all that I do? If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, can you really say that, yes, yes, Father, you have the final say in my life over everything? What's interesting is that Jesus was more concerned about others than himself. If you look through the Gospels as he hung on the cross, he never once complained. Never once never yelled from the cross, never complained once because he was concerned about you. He's concerned about me. He's concerned about all of humanity. He was concerned about the final say of his father because he loved his father. He wants what's best for us. Let's pick up in Luke chapter 23 again, and we're going to start in verse 27 says this, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves, for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jerusalem is about to face a great crisis. And Jesus tries to warn them. Again, we see this selfishness 
of Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And he looks and he, he says, you know, don't, don't worry about me. Don't focus on me. I want to warn you and tell you that the day is coming, the great crisis is coming to you. And, and, and don't, don't worry about me because I will be taken care of. And so we find that they missed it. And sometimes when we read the Gospels, we're like, man, why didn't those guys get that? Plain sight. But I think, honestly, we would have missed it too. I mean, I still think about it like when I'm in the Gospels or I'm in the Old Testament or I'm reading the New Testament further on than the Gospels, I read so many times and I think, wow, I missed that. Wow, how did I miss that? And so they miss it. And, and like Jerusalem, we have to understand that we're all going to face crisis. And we have to understand that we may have faced crisis, but that doesn't mean that it's over and it's done. The truth is, is we're going to face crisis until we're present with Jesus full time. It's always going to be there. Past, present, future. And we must grasp that no matter the size of the crisis, Jesus has the final say. Did you get that? No matter the size of the crisis, Jesus has the final say. I don't know what your crisis is. I don't know what crisis you've been through. I don't know what crisis you're going to encounter. But if we can keep at the forefront of our minds, if we can keep it at the front of our hearts to remember that Christ has the final say no matter what, we'll live differently, way differently. Something that I've discovered as I was walking through this whole understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus and all the gospels and reading through the New Testament and the prophecies that were declared about him and, and further on and how they reference further in the New Testament, there's something about Jesus that when he hangs on the cross is that he was declaring great comfort to those who were in crisis. And in the same way, even though he's not on the cross today, and even though he's there in heaven, he is still declaring great comfort to us in the midst of our crisis. Whether it's a death, whether it's a loss of friendship or a heartache or a diagnosis that we received, he is still there telling us that he is there at the heart, even in the midst of our crisis, and that he may not be present on the cross. And we may not be able to see him physically with our eyes. And there may be times that we can't physically feel him with our, with our presence, but the fact is he's still present in our crisis. He speaks the language of tears, which means he weeps. Jesus left the majesty of heaven and he comes down in human form. And we recall that when Lazarus was dead, he gets word that his best friend is dead. And it says that he weeps. He understood pain. He understood crisis. And he still does. He still speaks to our language. He still speaks to our hearts. And he tells us that he knows what's going on. He experiences our pain and our sorrow. And think about this for a moment, the deep wounds that we experience from others that, that maybe others give us in an unjustly manner. I can only imagine in a room this size, there has to be some of us here that are dealing with wounds that, that others have given to us in an unjustly manner. And we find ourselves in the midst of crisis. What if we saw these as opportunities? opportunities to grow deeper in intimacy with Jesus, to press into him a little bit deeper than where we currently are. Because that opportunity of intimacy with him pushes into a place where we begin to understand his suffering. See, think about it for a moment. Sometimes when we encounter crisis, let's be honest, it's all about us, right? It's all about how we've been wronged. It's all about how we've been hurt. We never stop to think about how Jesus handled crisis. 
We never stop to, to give him a moment to press into him deeper and more intimately to encounter and understand how he felt about crisis, how bad he was hurt, the injustice that was done to him. And when we move ourselves deeper and closer to him and we take that opportunity to get closer to him, we begin to understand and grasp a little bit of his suffering. And it begins to transform our lives. When we suffer unjustly, we gain intimacy and we gain a greater relationship with him, a greater union with him. I think about Mary, the mother. I can't even fathom what she was going through. And I won't even try to describe what she encountered. But Jesus speaks to her and in the midst of her tears, she doesn't get it. It bypasses her. Even years ago, years prior to that, way back, 30 some years prior to that, she's given this prophetic message, angel of the Lord, that you're gonna be the mother who carries the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, all these things. And I don't think she was thinking back at that moment and thinking, wait a minute, oh, wait a minute, I forgot. Yeah, the Lord gave me this word. I can be comforted now. I don't think that was happening. But even in those deep moments, she was suffering. She was blinded by fear and by tears and crisis. And in the same manner, in those deep moments of our lives, we can relate to Mary. We can understand through the fear and the tears and the crisis that there are those moments where we're blinded and we don't really see the fullness of what Jesus is doing. But out of his graciousness, he waits. He waits. And he cries with us. And in the midst of that, he relates to us and he calls to us. Just like Christ called to Mary on the cross in the midst of her tears. He does the same to us in the midst of our crisis. And when we hear Jesus cry, when we actually at that place of intimacy where we hear him crying, the brokenness of our heart actually becomes soothed we actually begin to comprehend what he endured for us, what he endured for us individually, what he endured for the entire world. And then all of a sudden our crisis doesn't seem as big as we thought it was compared to his and what he went through. When we experience the betrayal like Jesus did, we feel what he felt when he was suffering. And if we choose not to respond in the same manner, if we, we choose not to respond the way Jesus did, where Jesus kept his mouth closed the whole time. And the only time that he would speak was to one or two of the thieves on the cross, or else he would declare something out to the father or declare something intimately to those that he was close with. But to those of his accusers, he wouldn't open his mouth. He would just keep it quiet. And if we choose not to do that, we miss out. But if we choose, if we choose the avenue that Jesus took and we keep our mouths shut, then we experience a great blessing. We experience a deep reward. And there's something that rises up within us when that happens because he wipes away the tears that we are encountering and he swallows up those tears with his resurrection victory. And sometimes we miss it. We miss it. We, we're only as far as the point of the tears and we're demanding God gives us justice. God, give us justice now in my situation. And we miss out that he's ready to give us this resurrection victory. He's ready to swallow up the tears. He's ready to swallow up all that pain and all that suffering that we've encountered if we just let him. So I have a question for you. Are you wounded or are you hurting? Are you suffering on the inside? Are you willing to accept Jesus's resurrection victory in your life to heal you of that? Physical death couldn't hold him. And if physical death couldn't hold Jesus, then that means the wounds in your heart, the pain, the betrayal, the injustice, that can't hold them back either. 
he has the willingness and the power and the authority to heal you. So my question to you is this, does Jesus have the final say in your heart today? Let's finish up with Luke 23, 32 through 46. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he has God's Messiah, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. So to any onlooker, anyone who was passing by or even today in today's culture or society. We would possibly look at this moment as a moment of defeat because here you have Jesus, this one who declares he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's come to save the entire universe. And it seems as though that one, that chosen one has been defeated. He died, he gave his last breath. He said to the father, I commit my, hand into your, my, my spirit into your hands and, and he dies. And then he's buried. And so automatically anyone would think and say, well, that was a flop. I expected something bigger. I expected him to get off the cross and and slay all of his enemies and parade through the city and, and lead us into victory. And that doesn't happen. And so to any onlooker, anybody who hasn't encountered Jesus up to this point, it could look as, as a big epic fail. But Even when Jesus had passed, if we track back to the Old Testament, we see that the outcome, even before the New Testament was penned on paper, that Jesus and Father and Holy Spirit were already weaving a plan throughout the entire universe as to what was happening. If you pick up with me in the book of Exodus and you go back all the way into the Old Testament and you go Genesis, Exodus, Phenomenal book. You'll find the Israelites, and it was interesting because Pastor really confirmed this morning this final point that I'm going to finish up with with you. But you have the Israelites who are in bondage to the Egyptians. The Egyptians take them captivity, and that's all the Israelites have known for this period of time years and years and years of hard work and slavery. And there gets to this point where God shows up and he says, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm going to give them freedom. And so what happens is God sends Moses and and Moses goes and here we see this, this battle going on for the final say again. And here we have Moses battling against Pharaoh. And Moses comes and he says, I'm going to have the final say because I serve God and Pharaoh comes back, he says, no, I'm going to have the final say because I am God, lowercase g, because he felt that he was God. And we see this battle back and forth, but if we, if we remove that and look in the background of all of that, we actually see God and Satan. God is there saying, I'm going to have the final say. And, and, and Satan's over there saying, no, I'm going to have the final say because I'm God. And God's saying, no, I am God, capital G, and I'm going to have the final say. 
And so there comes to this point where God has released all these plagues on the Egyptians. And God's constantly demonstrating to the Israelites, one, that he is God, he's their God. Because the Egyptians served multiple gods, lowercase gods. And he was demonstrating to the Egyptians to say, look, I am your God and I can do all these things. And so for everything that would do is Satan would come back with a counter. And Pharaoh would be like, well, look, look what I can do. And, and so can your God do this? And finally, God gets to this point where he says, I'm going to give you the final say. And God tells them and says, I want you to take a pure spotless lamb. And I want you to sacrifice it. Every family within the Israelite nation living in Egypt under under bondage, I want you to sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that sacrifice. And I want you to put it over your doorpost because my wrath is going to come over that land. And only when it sees the blood of the lamb will my wrath pass over and protect you. But for those who do not have the blood of the lamb, my wrath will come and bring death and every firstborn will die. And if you read the story, it just so happens that the Egyptians didn't put blood over their doorways and the Israelites did and that the angel of death, it says, the wrath of God comes and there is death in the land and Pharaoh loses his son. Now, what's interesting, if you hold that thought for a moment, and if you understand Egyptian religion, you'd say, why would God do that with a lamb and put blood over a doorpost? Isn't that kind of gruesome? God wanted to have the final say with the Egyptians. Because if you were an Egyptian and you worshiped multiple gods, what you would do is you would go and make a sacrifice. And you would take the blood of that sacrifice and you would put it over your doorpost to your house. And then what you would do is you would honor the deity or the false God by saying, welcome him to my home through my sacrifice. And it says that they would jump or run through the threshold of blood that they just made to declare that they are in unity and in alliance and in covenant with that God. And so God says, no, I will have the final say. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit say, there must be a lamb, a pure, spotless lamb that must be killed and the blood must go over the threshold. And I will prove to you that I have the final say because your God cannot produce death because I am the God of life and death. And finally, we see that Pharaoh releases the Egyptians and you continue to read the story, releases the Israelites, and you continue to read that story and what happens is amazing. But if you track with me back to the New Testament, just for a moment, what we just read in Luke is it says at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus gives up his spirit. He says, it's done, it's finished. If we look, Jesus was the pure spotless lamb. His blood had to be shed so that the wrath of God could pass over all of humanity to save us from death. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this plan to have the final say over humanity. And the whole thing about Jesus being so essential is that even to this day, we have sin in our hearts, right? We deal with sin. The reason Jesus is so essential is because of his blood. And it is only the blood over our hearts that prevents the wrath of God from turning on us. Because we see that as we struggle and deal with the sin in our lives, the Father comes to us And because of the blood of Jesus that is there, the Father passes over us with his wrath. And he extends forgiveness. That's why Jesus is so essential. Exodus 12, 13 says, when I see the blood, I'll 
pass over you. Think about it when you're struggling in that moment and you go before Jesus and you ask forgiveness and you hear those words, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. So my question to you this morning is this. What is in the depths of your heart that God keeps passing over every day? And what is in the depths of your heart that Jesus keeps looking to you saying, when are you going to deal with this? God declares, I'll have the final say. Jesus declares, I'll have the final say. And Holy Spirit says, I'll have the final say. And that's why Jesus is so essential. Let's stand. Father, this morning, we declare that we're grateful that you have the final say. We declare that we are grateful that you have a plan in place and that we don't have to worry about it. We thank you that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are working together, you are in unison. That everything points to you to glorify you, to exalt you, to lift you up. And at the same time, you don't skip one beat of love for us, not once but you're totally consumed with loving us and taking care of us and protecting us. And we thank you for that. This morning, we pray for those that are here that maybe have never encountered you. We declare that they would have an encounter with you, that they would truly encounter you and be transformed and that they would be able to simply declare that you are Lord of their lives, that you have the final say of their hearts. For those here, God, that are dealing with crisis right now, Maybe they're coming out of the tail end or maybe they're just beginning or in the thick of it. Continually remind them that you have the final say. Jesus, that you weep and you relate with us in the midst of our pain. And finally, we pray that whatever it is that is in our hearts individually, that you graciously keep passing over because of the blood of the lamb that is placed on our hearts to protect us that we would come to that place where we would aggressively attack and deal with it so that we don't have to hear you say, when are we going to deal with it? Father, may it be that out of love for you, we want to deal with it. Jesus, continue to protect us, guide us, and direct us as we go through our week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great week.